about time we thanked another of our patrons today. So this one goes out to Sandy Anderson. We hope you're enjoying those warm fuzzies. But when a dream is to redeem it, you spend the winning willing. Welcome back to another episode of our Two Scientists podcast. We are currently basking in ridiculous heat, despite the fact that it should be nice and Christmassy. It's not, unfortunately. Um, and our guest this evening is Davide Tanasi. How are you? Very well. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for coming out to meet us. My this pleasure. Um, and unfortunately, we normally go to the New World Brewery. Possibly you've never been there because um, I think they shut down too soon for you to be able to visit. But in the meanwhile, while they kind of revamp themselves and they move on, we're at the World of Beer and enjoying just that. So, cheers. Cheers. Happy holidays. Happy holidays. So, Davide, tell us more about how you got into your study. So you, you are an archaeologist and you work at the Department of History here at USF. Yes. So I'm a Mediterranean archaeologist. I'm specialized in the archaeology of the Mediterranean region from prehistory to the Middle Ages. I've started my career working in Greece and in the Aegean Islands and then gradually I shifted towards Central Mediterranean Sicily and Malta. And my initial training was that of a traditional field archaeologist then in the last decade I developed an interest towards uh, more innovative branches of archaeological research mm -hmm. which are archaeological science on one side which is application of chemistry, physics and geology to uh, the study of archaeological artifacts and uh, 3D digital imaging applied to archaeology on the other side which is also known as digital archaeology. And so this uh, has changed drastically my profile and uh, last summer I landed a job here at USF in the History Department uh, as Assistant Professor of Digital Humanities uh, to work in this uh, cutting-edge research center that USF has here uh, on Tampa campus named the Center for Virtualization and Applied Spatial Technologies. Mm -hmm. Behind my hire there was also the interest of USF of developing new research projects uh, in Sicily which is the country from uh, which I come from, as uh -huh. you can tell from my tough Italian accent. <laughs> And, uh, and also because in Tampa there's a very um, a numerous and important community of Sicilian American and they are all, uh, uh -huh. they have their own headquarters in the Italian club uh, at Tibor City. Of course, yes. And so, uh, you know, my role would have been then of bridging the gap between this uh, community of Sicilian American and Sicily, you know, fostering, mm -hmm. uh, fostering projects. And so in a nutshell, I got this job. I was hired at USF and uh, last August I moved uh, to Tampa straight from Sicily. Oh, okay. Wow. That's quite a jump. It is quite a jump, yes. Yes, <laughs> I can tell. I've been in the US uh, uh, many times before. Uh, my previous employer was uh, another American university in Pennsylvania, Arcadia University, which is specialized in study abroad programs. Uh, mm -hmm. And so in the past five years, I was responsible of the study abroad programs in Sicily for Arcadia University. So, mm -hmm. And in those five years, I went back and forth from Sicily and the US. But uh, Florida is not Pennsylvania. No, it certainly um, isn't. And um, yes, the, no offense to American foodies or fans of food, but yes, it's got to be quite a shock to leave behind your beautiful Italian cuisine. Well, yes, I'm still trying to find a good Italian restaurant here in Tampa, but uh, I'll keep looking. <laughs> well, we wish you luck, but in the meanwhile, <laughs> um, let's talk some more about your science, because 
I mean, first of all, what do you say to people who say that archaeology isn't really a science? Well, archaeology nowadays is more a science than it was before. Mm -hmm. The daily work of the archaeologists nowadays is characterized by a large involvement of technical solutions provided by other disciplines. Mm -hmm. And in particular, there are branches of the archaeology in which uh, the impact of those sciences is crucial, like prehistory, for example. So when you have to study ancient civilization which did not leave behind any written record and you have to do your utmost to get all the possible information from the study of material culture, then you need the help of other sciences to better characterize, study and interpret that scanty evidence. Yep. There are other fields like classical archaeology or medieval archaeology in which the uh, um, the written sources are more important than relevant and so those scholars can complete successful researches without embracing that much other mm -hmm. disciplines. But uh, it is a fact that uh, the job market, uh, the job academic market has changed and so there are fewer and fewer jobs every year for traditional archaeology yep. and there are more job opportunities for, uh, you know, digital archaeology or archaeological mm -hmm. science which is exactly what I do yep. and uh, I think that uh, those two uh, branches of archaeology are becoming uh, very popular because they are based on uh, transmission so transmission of skills mm -hmm. because we pass uh, we working in this field we pass skills uh, to our students uh, skills which can be easily exported uh, to other fields mm -hmm. like communication like medicine like psychology or chemistry yep. so that makes our courses popular and the traditional archaeology uh, courses less popular and less popular every day yep. so it is wrong to say that uh, in 2017 uh, archaeology is not uh, a science archaeology mm -hmm. was once uh, ancient art history yep. but it is not that discipline anymore yep. So before we talk to you specifically about your research, I was looking up your, your webpage and uh, clearly for you it's just as important to be teaching as it is to be doing your, uh, your scientific research. Um, so tell me more about how you find teaching because you, you like to use this term edutainment. Yes, yes, edutainment is the backbone of my teaching philosophy. So I cannot say uh, that uh, I'd be a complete scholar without uh, without the teaching mm -hmm. the teaching uh, and uh, i would say not just the teaching i would say the dissemination of knowledge mm -hmm. because uh, when i say teaching i just uh, imply that i'm teaching to students in my classes but uh, it's more appropriate to say dissemination of knowledge because i really want to disseminate the results of my researches at every level at the level of the students but uh, also at the level of the public mm -hmm. the best way to disseminate uh, a technical message like that of archaeology is through entertainment yep. making lighter making funny the, the learning experience mm -hmm. and specifically in the field of digital archaeology which is my primary field of expertise the use of computers the use of uh, you know technological devices makes uh, more understandable the message of archaeology and also more funny. Yep. And I, in my uh, in my dissemination strategies uh, and in my teaching, I rely mostly on uh, visual sources mm -hmm. and visual materials uh, because uh, visual materials uh, go beyond beyond any kind of uh, linguistic barrier or cultural barrier. Mm -hmm. So images can be fully and totally understood more than any written sentence. Yep. And um, 
in particular, edutainment is an approach which turns out to be successful with the generation of the millennials mm -hmm. uh, because they have literally grown up, you know, using computers, you yep. know, playing video games. Uh, and um, fortunately, there's, uh, th there are, you know, a lot of uh, approaches like digital storytelling of serious gaming uh, mm -hmm. which uh, have been successfully applied uh, uh, to the archaeological research in the past. Yep. And so I rely mostly on them and on the production of media, you know, to disseminate my message, the message of archaeology. That's very cool. And it, I think it is important to, to keep gauging your audience. Actually, I've been following a Twitter account called I Am Psycom. And so it's just obviously a group of scientists and communicators who take over this Twitter handle for the space of a week and they share their, their experiences in the kind of field that they specialize in. They recently had a comedian. And so, as you say, it's, it's kind of important to try and engage on as many different levels using all the tools in your arsenal to um, make sure that you reach Absolutely. as diverse an audience as possible. Well, I'd love to be in your classes by the sounds of it. I have to say, <laughs> over the years, I've had some incredibly dry teachers. Um, but going back to your research, so tell us what it is that you do on a day-to-day -day basis, because you say you work at them. Now I'm going to completely screw this up. So CVAST. Yes, CVAST, Center for Virtualization and Applied Spatial Technologies. Yep. Is a cutting-edge uh, research uh, center which was established at the last year here at USF. Mm -hmm. And uh, the main goal of this research center is the democratization of science. So we use the, the state-of-the-art uh, uh, virtualization techniques uh, mm -hmm. uh, to create digital replicas of uh, uh, cultural heritage, which for some reasons is not uh, accessible. Mm -hmm. So uh, digital uh, cultural heritage, which is inaccessible because it's located in war zones. Yeah. Uh, ah, cultural heritage, which is inaccessible because uh, it's on the opposite side of the world and I can't afford it. Uh -huh. Digital uh, cultural heritage, which is inaccessible because it's poorly digitally accessible, mm -hmm. because the website of that museum sucks. And <laughs> I, I want to know more about that collection of antiquities before I book the ticket and I go to Italy. Of course. And uh, cultural heritage, which is perfectly accessible, it's in a great location, great museum, everything exhibited, but it's not accessible for a certain part of the public, like the public with cognitive disabilities or the public with uh -huh. uh, visual impairments. Yeah. That portion of the public which needs to touch yep. and interact with the subject of their study. Mm -hmm. And we know that archaeologists are so jealous of the archaeological artifacts that they keep them trapped into the vitrines uh -huh. where nobody can touch them. Yep. And so this is what we do at Sivast. Sivast is uh, uh, not just an only a research center because a part of our mission is in education. Mm -hmm. We have a lot. We give a lot of classes at Sivast, and we are open to many internship programs for undergraduate and graduate. graduate. And in that uh, perspective, our mission is to train the new generation of 3D technicians. Yep. Because in the next years there will be more demand for professionals in the field of digital archaeology. And nowadays there are very few PhD programs uh, or even MA programs in the field of digital humanities and digital archaeology. Mm -hmm. So we are making our effort uh, to have our students prepared. Okay. So do you work with Laurie Collins? Yes. She's so Laurie Collins uh, worked, uh, was the director of the institution 
of the institution named the Alliance for Integrated Special Technologies, mm -hmm. which was uh, transformed into SIVAS 20 years ago. I see. So we are basically the heirs of what Lori Collins has created. She doesn't work with us anymore. Okay. She works in another research unit named the DHHC at the USF Library. And we basically work in the same field with the same goals. The only and the main and most important uh, uh, thing which differentiate SIVAST from DHHC is that they have an emphasis on the old world archaeology, I'm sorry, the new world archaeology, uh -huh. while SIVAST has an emphasis on the old world archaeology. We currently have active projects in Spain, in France, uh, in Italy, and mm -hmm. we plan to expand our projects towards the Eastern Mediterranean. Yeah, so according to David, not to be confused with Davide, the Italian, David the Spaniard, was looking at your website today and he said it's absolutely incredible the, the replicas of certain sites that you have on there. Yes, we have, uh, we have uh, started one year and a half to work on those projects abroad and we have focused, uh, for example, in Spain, we have largely worked in the La Mancha region, mm -hmm. which is a very underserved uh, part of central Spain mm -hmm. with an outstanding archaeological heritage, which is barely known to the Spaniards. Mm -hmm. So uh, our goal was to create the virtual replicas of those monuments and then disseminate online uh, the virtual models uh, of those monuments uh, in order to attract the interest of the general public uh, mm -hmm. because it has been proven that uh, virtual models uh, stimulate the interest of potential tourists uh, to go to the actual place and see those monuments. And in fact, when we were working in La Mancha, all of a sudden, you know, forsaken little towns of Spain were under the spotlight mm -hmm. because the Americans were there with their big <laughs> scanners visualizing the monuments and saw a lot of headlines on the newspaper and saw politicians promising funds, you know, to manage and restore those monuments. So that is an example of uh, what uh, are the benefits that uh, our uh, research can have on mm -hmm. the countries in which they work. Yeah. And, uh, our projects in Spain, uh, I'm sorry, in France and Italy are not that different, are again about uh, unknown uh, jewels of cultural heritage. In Sicily, for example, we have worked on uh, several world heritage sites, mm -hmm. which are, you know, well, very well known. They are the jewel of the crowns of the Mediterranean cultural heritage. They are basically known just to the Sicilians and maybe some Italians, mm -hmm. not certainly to, to the Americans. Yeah. So. Putting those models online, we want you know to attract the interest of uh, a whole different uh, section of public on on those monuments. Mm -hmm. So, speaking specifically about sites, now you you've been featured in a lot of scientific media recently because of a, a particular site that you work on, which is an old Roman villa. Can you tell us more about that? Yes. So um, last year when I came here to USF. Uh, and uh, uh, my hire was also instrumental for the plan that USF had to develop new projects uh, in Sicily. I created a study abroad program uh, for USF uh, in Sicily, mm -hmm. a study abroad program in summer, summer 2017, yep. which was basically a field school in archaeology in which the USF undergraduates uh, were called uh, to excavate uh, a real uh, archaeological site, in this case uh, a Roman villa located in the southern uh, coast of Sicily uh, in a site named Real Monte. It's a villa which was excavated in the uh, late 70s, early 80s by a Japanese team of uh, archaeologists who did not publishing anything about uh, their results. Uh -huh. They left behind some interesting uh, written reports in Japanese uh, 
which <laughs> nobody was able to translate <laughs> until we found them. And uh, the villa is an outstanding monument. It's 3,500 square meters with more than 1,000 square meters of mosaics. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's a villa built in the first century AD by the sea. So it's a villa for leisure and uh -huh. fun. It's not uh, a villa meant to exploit agricultural uh, um, uh, estates. And so uh, this past summer, uh, in, uh, together with Michael Decker, who is uh, the chair of the history department and the director of the Center for Visualization and Applied Spatial Technologies, we directed uh, uh, the excavation of this Roman villa uh, with the, the students of USF. And uh, we discovered a lot. Mm -hmm. We discovered uh, um, a new uh, medieval phase of use of this villa, which was completely unknown. And we used our uh, digital imaging uh, techniques to create a virtual replica of the villa from the, gr from the ground and from the air. So we used terrestrial laser scanning and drone photogrammetry uh -huh. to create a 3D model of the villa, which is uh, uh, super accurate and uh, geometrically um, precise, which will be meant uh, for uh, public dissemination uh, projects, but also it's, it's meant for us because we can use that 3D model of the villa to keep studying the monument and getting further information about you know the various phases through which it was uh, you know used. Mm -hmm. And of course, this this story also comes along with this finding the discovery of this 6,000-year-old bottle of wine. Of course, this is what interests us the most. Of course, because <laughs> everybody everybody loves wine. So that is basically another research, uh, which was uh, also carried out in Sicily and also carried out in summer, but it's uh, a different kind of scientific exercise. It's uh, more an archaeological science kind of exercise. Mm -hmm. So, uh, long story short, uh, there's a, a very interesting prehistoric site in uh, uh, central Sicily, in a, in a place named Monte Cronio. Monte Cronio is a mountain which is... Uh, hollow inside mm -hmm. because inside it has a very complex uh, system of uh, uh, caves and inside of those caves uh, there's a consistent emission of geothermal gas uh -huh. so this site was uh, uh, frequented was occupied since the sixth millennium bc and there are traces of occupation inside of those uh, uh, in, of those caves mm -hmm. what is important to state out is that uh, the conditions inside of those caves are very dangerous for human life because there's an average temperature of 40 degrees Celsius. I'm sorry, I'm very bad with Fahrenheit. <laughs> and there's a humidity... I think that's 90 something. And there's a humidity level of 100%. Uh -huh. So basically after a few minutes inside of those caves, you basically pass out and then eventually you die. And uh, this geothermal emission also uh, affects a series of water springs uh, mm -hmm. around the um, mountain. And certainly the mountain was also very active in terms of earthquake uh, in the past. So that is certainly the explanation why prehistoric civilization decided to settle all around it. Because they probably thought that there was a kind of deity living inside of the mountain and shaking it out when he was angry. Uh -huh. And so uh, the ancient people who ventured inside of the caves uh, uh, risking their lives 
they mainly did that in order to placate the anger of this underground deity, mm -hmm. offering to them what they thought was uh, what they had of more valuable, which was food and drink offerings. Mm -hmm. So in 2012, uh, a trained team of speleologists from northern Italy, from Trento, fully explored and documented the complex of caves, uh, and they had suits like astronauts uh -huh. in order to survive for a longer time inside of the cave. And they found in the deepest part of the cave, closest to the origin of the geothermal uh, emission of gas, a very large storage jar which were left there basically uh, 6,000 years ago because mm -hmm. those were copper age jars yep. dated back pretty much uh, in terms of absolute chronology for Sicilian prehistory uh, at the half uh, of the fourth millennium BC. And during that uh, uh, survey, the speleologists were able to collect some samples from inside of those jars, which were completely empty. Mm -hmm. So when I mean collecting some samples, it means that they scrapped the inner walls and they collected some powder. Mm -hmm. And they passed those samples to the uh, superintendents of cultural heritage of Agrigento, which is the institution having jurisdiction on that site. Yep. Uh, last year, I partnered up with the superintendents of Agrigento and I got from them the samples uh, on which I carried out chemical analysis to characterize uh, an, the eventual presence of an organic residue. Mm -hmm. uh, the techniques which we used to make this characterization are gas chromatography and nuclear magnetic resonance. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, analysis which were carried out in part in Rome, in one of the labs of the Italian National Council of Researchers, mm -hmm. and uh, in part uh, here at USF. Yep. And we figured out from that analysis that uh, uh, in one of the jars there was a very, very high degree of tartaric acid, mm -hmm. which is the indicator of uh, the fermentation of uh, pure grape wine. Uh -huh. And so we basically found out, uh, you know, wine in that jar so being a mostly a nerdy scholar than a smart communicator <laughs> i put the discovery or such a big discovery in a super technical uh, article uh, published on microchemical journal which is an high impact factor uh, journal probably read by me by the editor-in-chief and the mom of the editor-in-chief <laughs> because it's really too technical <laughs> but nonetheless uh, when this uh, news and and uh, it was strange because usually when you submit an article for publication you get reviews uh, and uh, it go, you go back and forth it takes months before you have anything published in the case of this article in which in a low tone I announced the discovery of this very old wine they immediately accepted the article in a month it was already online open access <laughs> and I say well I thought that's strange but I couldn't explain why but the explanation is because it was a great discovery and mm -hmm. it was picked up by national and international media I was bombarded for months <laughs> by journalists from every part of the world and the news was uh, uh, you know picked up by CNN, BBC, uh, published by The Guardian, published on the main national newspapers from Italy, the Netherlands, Czech Republic, but was even published in uh, uh, a very prominent Indian newspaper named mm -hmm. Statesman and also by a number you know, of web thousands I would say 
of websites. And I was even contacted by a BBC director who wants to shoot in February a documentary about the origin of wine. Oh, wow. And he wants to fly me to London, you know, to give my contribute to this documentary. So the news became viral. So you went from this completely impenetrable scientific article, which, like you say, a handful of people would understand, to the world limelight. Yes, exactly. <laughs> the only issue I had with this, uh, with this uh, boom of notoriety, is that uh, not always uh, journalists uh, check their sources. Mm -hmm. So a handful of journalists contacted me and got the story uh, as it was supposed to be. The others just picked the random news uh, and they made up parts that they didn't have, causing, uh, causing them some, uh, you know, um, some issues with my partners uh, uh -huh. uh, back in Italy. But Anyway, uh, I, didn't, I didn't even realize that when I made this discovery that uh, uh, the wine which I found was actually the oldest wine in the world. Because uh, the previous alcoholic beverages which was found in Armenia was a pomegranate mm -hmm. kind of wine. So it was not pure uh, grape wine. Mm -hmm. So all of a sudden I was you know, the discoverer of uh, uh, the oldest wine of, of the world, me. I'm not even a good uh, wine drinker because I prefer <laughs> beer. And I was also receiving uh, you know, emails from owners of uh, wineries all mm. over the US uh, asking me the secret recipe of this old wine <laughs> so they can commercialize it. I said, I have no idea. <laughs> and from the, but the handful of molecules that you discovered. Exactly. But this, this privilege of being the discoverer of the oldest wine in the world uh, ended up uh, pretty quickly because two weeks ago or three weeks ago, an older wine was discovered in Georgia, oh, in the Caucasus, <laughs> and that's a, a pure uh, wine, uh, grape wine, dated back to 10,000 BC, which wow. makes it 4,000 years older than mine. Wow. So now my record is to have discovered the oldest wine in Europe, <laughs> which is better than nothing. This is true. This is true. Oh, how quickly you get outdated. That's, that's quite fantastic. Although. The strange thing is, I didn't realize until we had a Georgian PhD student that Georgia was actually famous for its wine. Georgia is an outstanding place for archaeology and cultural heritage. And it's an example of uh, uh, an inaccessible cultural heritage. Mm -hmm. Because it's not certainly you know, a top destination for travelers no. and not easily reachable. So uh, it would be ideal you know, to foster new projects targeting uh, that part of uh, Eurasia. Who knows, maybe in the near future, as a Sivast, we will be able to get there as well. Mm -hmm. And obviously we shouldn't need to clarify that this is not Georgia, USA. <laughs> no, it is not. <laughs> I don't think Georgia has much of a reputation for its wine. Um, so normally we'd have a bunch of questions. Okay, David has silly questions for you. How does the second oldest wine in the world taste like? <laughs> I think it tastes like crap. <laughs> and then the oldest wine in Europe is certainly way better. S second question is, um, how much of your work is field work and how much of it is uh, digital world? Uh, and of the field work, how much do you have to fight Nazis? <laughs> So we, we archaeologists usually fight Nazis uh, uh, one month per year in summertime. So when there's a break from teaching, 
we usually carry out uh, field works uh, and uh, it's always under the blazing sun because who works in the Mediterranean has to face this destiny of working under the uh, blazing sun. So usually I've started uh, my career as a field archaeologist in 1998 and I usually had at least one or two months of field work every year since then. Now it's a little bit harder because being in the US to travel back and forth from the Mediterranean is a little bit expensive and harder but at least one month is always field work. There's also another component of the field work which is the work that we carried out in the storerooms of museums. So we archaeologists not always study artifacts found by ourselves in our excavations. We also study artifacts found by someone else's who are stored in the museums. Mm -hmm. So for example, this past summer I spent a month in Malta working on artifacts from an old excavation never published, and then a month in Sicily excavating my own site. And so Besides that month or those two months in which we fight successfully Nazis, uh, <laughs> most of my uh, research is carried out uh, in the lab, which can be the Sivast lab, and it's a digital imaging kind of research, or it's in a chemistry lab, and it's uh, an archaeological science kind of research. So, as part of your reconstruction, where do you... Obviously, you've done the research to find out exactly how this villa would look you know, what, what materials it would be made from and so on. So where do you extract that information in order to reconstruct these things digitally? So, uh, in the case of the villa we excavated in Sicily, there aren't written sources at all. So we don't know anything about uh, uh, the appearance of this villa back in the days. And of course, uh, the site which we have excavated, it's uh, just partly preserved. So a good part of it is missing. So when we reconstruct virtually, when we create reconstructive 3D models of archaeological monuments, we rely on comparisons. We rely on other villas in this case, with the same chronology, in the same geographic area, which are better preserved than our one. Mm -hmm. And we try to get from those examples the missing parts. Okay. Of course, uh, when we create a reconstructive 3D model, we can't assume that there is the real way in which the villa appeared. That is one of the ways other digital scholars can reconstruct that villa in a different way. Mm -hmm. What is important is that when we disseminate our model, we have to disseminate also what we call metadata and paradata, which are all the technical information related to the production process in order for that experiment to be repeated by someone else. Yeah. Um, so I had a co uh, question from my colleague Steve, so we were chatting at lunch about the fact that we were recording this podcast with you today, and he's brought up uh, a recent series of artifacts and a mummy that was discovered in Egypt this year, I believe, and he was saying um, it seems really strange that these discoveries are still being made. How, how many of these kinds of discoveries do you think are, there might still be out there to be found by people and what is it that makes them so difficult to find? What is it that, um, I suppose one of the examples you gave earlier is you have war-torn countries for example or ones that are so poor and generally people wouldn't go and visit them. So the, the, the first enemy of archaeological research is money. Mm -hmm. Archaeological research is expensive, especially when it's carried out abroad. And uh, uh, 
it, in Europe, for example, a lot of uh, financial supports uh, to universities were cut uh, for archaeological fieldworks. And so it's kind of very hard uh, you know, to undertake new archaeological initiatives. And also at a local level, for example, I can speak for Italy, many regions, they have uh, less and less funds uh, for uh, emergency archaeology excavations. So there's still a lot buried underground, but there, is, there aren't enough resources to start taking that stuff out. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's true, there's still a lot of stuff still buried, but uh, the public and people in general don't think that there's also a lot of stuff completely unknown buried in the storage of the museums. Mm -hmm. And I have started as young scholar my career studying a lot of materials which was found in excavations more than a century ago and never published. Oh wow. So I started my career republishing something which was poorly published or never published mm -hmm. and that turned out to be extremely beneficial. Yeah. So if uh, on one side uh, it is a fact that there isn't that much money uh, at stake uh, for new archaeological excavations, uh, at least we can use that little money we have in this historical period uh, to focus on those materials uh, which are in the storages of uh, many museums. Yeah. So given that, I mean, in most cases money comes as a result of convincing the right people that this work is worthy of that money, so how do you convince people that your research should get funded? It's actually very easy to reach the heart of people and donors and extremely hard to reach the pocket of those people. So <laughs> we have to be creative and we have to use what we have to make simple and understandable what is the subject of our research. Mm -hmm. If we come up with our technical mumbo-jumbo, they will not even consider us. So we have to explain to the public why our research is relevant mm -hmm. and why all of us have to uh, uh, earn from supporting this kind, this kind of research. So in particular, my research on food, uh, a very important research tra track for me is a study of ancient dietary and culinary habits uh -huh. of Mediterranean civilization. Well, that is easy because people understand very well food and alcoholic beverages. Mm -hmm. And it's very easy to explain them how important it is to combine the study of dietary and culinary habits with the study of paleopathologies, ancient diseases. Uh -huh. So we can try and see if there's a connection between the emergence of a certain pathology in an individual because of a certain diet. Yeah. That makes archaeology very relevant nowadays. Mm -hmm. It's not just all the stuff. Yeah. And another hot topic in archaeology just like that is uh, uh, um, the environment, mm -hmm. environmental archaeology and you know, coastal changes, uh, possibility yep. of prediction of uh, uh, natural disasters mm -hmm. which occurred in the past. Uh, if archaeologists would be able to identify the indicators of the arrival of a tsunami, for example, yeah. of a destructive earthquakes, it uh, would be great if you could predict in the same way the arrival of future you know, catastrophes uh, mm -hmm. nowadays. So, yeah. actualizing archaeology, simplifying the message of archaeology is the best way to reach the art and the pocket of the public uh, and mm -hmm. find alternative uh, you know, financial means. On your website, you say there are three kind of regions that you've worked in. And so there's Crete, there's Greek Sicily and Malta. Yes. Do you have a favorite among them? 
Well, or is be, it like choosing among your children? Well, <laughs> yeah. so Crete is the place in which I moved my first steps as archaeologist. Uh, in the first six years of my career, I worked in the field of Aegean prehistory and I worked uh, on Crete. And then I just uh, dropped that island for another island, which was my uh, home country, Sicily. Uh -huh. And uh, I, I, my, my research interests are pretty much uh, on, uh, on, uh, on Sicily. But 10 years ago, I discovered Malta, which is a whole different world, just 80 miles south of Sicily. Mm -hmm. And I fell in love with the material culture of uh, that place. And so I can say now that I equally split my time working in Malta and mm -hmm. working in Sicily. And I can tell you, being Sicilian, uh, that it's easier to work with the Maltese than with the Sicilians, <laughs> which are stubborn as donkeys. <laughs> so, and I, you're allowed to say that. Yeah, because I'm Sicilian, so I can, I can say that. So, uh, yes, so I would equally uh, say that I split my time between Sicily and Malta, and I left a little bit behind the Aegean and Crete, but I have a lot of, you know, good memories in, in Crete. <laughs> well, that's brilliant. Um, thank you for not being stubborn and for coming out my to speak pleasure. to us this evening. And thanks again. My pleasure. Happy holidays. Thank you. So actually it's my first year in Greece, my first excavation abroad ever. So it was summer 1999, Crete, central Crete, a very, very small town up on the hills, 300 inhabitants in a very underserved and underdeveloped part of Crete in which uh, uh, the, the people had very conservative uh, traditional behaviors. I was traveling with a couple of senior graduate students from the University of Catania back in Italy and with my, with my professor back in those days. And of course I was very excited because it was my first uh, excavation. I wanted, you know, to do it properly. I wanted to impress my professor especially. During the trip on the plane, my professor lectured me and told me that uh, we must be very respectful of, uh, you know, the habits of those people and uh, we need to do our utmost, you know, to not uh, hurt their feelings. We need to comply, you know, to their, you know, to their rules. And uh, with that in mind, I remember we arrived uh, uh, in this small town named Prinias and the first night I decided to venture alone on my own to the only uh, social place that there was in that town, a town in which people were still going back and forth on donkeys. There weren't cars or motorcycles, mm -hmm. there weren't shops or you know, telephone or internet or everything. It was like the Middle Ages. So the only social place was a cafeteria, which, with what the Greek calls cafeneo. I went to this place having in my mind the idea of, uh, well, Italian cafeteria, so something where I can get some food and fries and hamburger. I went there, and uh, in this little place there were just men, no women at all. And when I came in, uh, everyone stared at me because I was the foreigner, and they knew that I was, you know, the, that guy. And so, you know, very shy, I went to a table, I sat alone on my own, and everyone was staring at me. And with my poor Greek, uh, I called uh, one of the, uh, you know, the personnel 
and uh, I asked him what I could get uh, and he told me that the only thing I could get there was uh, Raki which is a very powerful rough kind of schnapps uh, that they produce in their basements and I said uh, well okay I think I guess I'm gonna leave because I don't drink uh, you know alcoholic beverages like that I guess I'm gonna I'm gonna leave and then immediately uh, someone put a, a little shot of Raki on my table and I said what is this I did not order any Raki and I saw a man on the other side of the room raising his uh, shot to me, like, you have to drink, you know, to my wealth and health. And they kept uh, repeating a word in Greek saying, aspropato, aspropato. So with my little Greek, I asked to the waitress, what is that? And they said, drink it on gulp. Uh-huh. And they said, well, I cannot really do that, but at the same time, I knew that to not do that would have hurt the feelings of that man that I, I, I knew I couldn't do that. And so I did it. I just drank it uh, on one gulp. And I already felt immediately dizzy and you know, this liquid fire was you know, burning my stomach. And at that point I was about to leave and then another shot arrived. And all the men in that place were ready to offer me shots, one shot after the other. And I knew I couldn't say no because it was very bad. So after two or three shots, uh, I, I was pitch black, I passed out, and uh, I remember that I woke up uh, with my professor yelling at my face. I was laying on the grass of the front yard of our house, and I did not remember anything. And uh, that day was the beginning of the excavation, it was 6 a.m. My professor and the other students were ready to go to the excavation, and I was, you know, completely <laughs> wasted on the grass of the front yard. And that, that was my, you know, my first uh, experience uh, in Greece. You've gotta talk through things you feel. This week's featured band is Actual Bank Robbers. No, not Actual Bank Robbers, the Actual Bank Robbers. You can find their website at actualbankrobbers.com where they'll have exciting news for their fans with a new single called All Over being released this Friday, April 13th. We also have a little announcement for you regarding some potential free stuff if you'd like to take part in our competition. If you live near a Taste of Science Festival City, find out by going to tasteofscience.org, you could win a couple of free tickets or some festival goodies. If you're too far from a fest, we'll send you a little something for two scientists instead. All you have to do is share a podcast you loved from this season with a little explanation of why. Use the hashtag TwoScientistsPod and we'll let you know of the winners in the next release. Remember, you can email hello at twoscientists.org, share on Facebook or Google Plus with the handle TwoScientists, or Twitter with 2SCIS. We look forward to seeing what your favourites were. Good luck! It's entirely up to you It's entirely up to you Entirely up to you After when the mask I'm wearing is interfering with how I feel in life Wearing my badge of honor, crashing the drive Carry the t-shirt with me, we'll scream, see me, it's in the
and then we're being gate crushed by Rocky oh, the Bull. Rocky. Hi, Rocky. How's it going? It's great <laughs> to see you. 